So let's look at our text. The text is printed in your bulletin, but what I'd like you to do as we've been uh, doing my custom, I hope you've appreciated this. It's uh, a little bit different. I, I ask that you not read along. Now you can if you want to. I mean, it's America. You have free will. Uh, so <laughs> you can read it if you want. But, but I'm asking that you just listen the first go through. Let me read it to you. Uh, and then we will uh, we'll dig in the verses, and then that's a good time for you to look at the text. Uh, but now hear God's word. It is a long reading, so be patient. Don't let your attention slip. Uh, but uh, I feel like we need to read it in its context. Now hear God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral, for sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height 
are equal. The wall was built of pure jasper, while the city was pure like gold, clear as crystal. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amaseth. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by night. Or by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word. So as we've been doing each week, we're going to look at what do we see? Why do we see it? And who do we see? When you ask the question, well, what do you see? I mean, there is an incredible amount to see in this text. And much of it is just straightforward. It's a description of the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, the city, and the garden that is in the city. And so let me go through these and let me explain a few things because I want you to see something more than just the city, just the garden, just the temple and all of that. There's more to see and I don't think we really see it. We've taken an approach throughout these many, many weeks of looking at the revelation of John through the lens of its symbolism, that symbols are pointing to something else. The symbols are not the things in and of themselves. They're literal, 
But they're pointing to something else that in many cases is indescribable. And John exhausts his vocabulary in attempting to describe these things. But if all you do is see a big city, you really miss the meaning of the text. And I'll try to help us all with that. So what is the first thing you see? The first thing you see here is a new creation. And John introduces it in verses 1 through 8. And what he's talking about is a new cosmos, new heavens up there, new earth down here. And right away our minds run to, well, what's going to happen? Is it going to burn? Is there going to be a fire and all that? Yes, yes, and no. You see, we have an image in our mind, and we get some of that image from Second Peter uh, chapter 3. And let me read it to you. You all are familiar with this. There's another place, I think it's in Jude, where he talks about this. The heavens and earth, Peter said this. He's, he's encouraging people. He's saying, you know, this is not the end. There's going to be more yet. The heavens and the earth now exist. They are being stored up for fire, kept until the day of destruction, the day of judgment of the ungodly. And there, here's what he says. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies, all those things up there that we see, will be burned and dissolved, the earth and its works. And in the ESV, it says they will be exposed. And that's a good translation. It's better than some of the other translations because what he's saying is that the cosmos is not going to be annihilated, but rather it is going to be purified as by fire. It's, the impurities are going to be exposed, and the good part is going to be exposed. You know, my former life, for 25 years, I started in high school, and then I had a business for 20 years. I was a dental technician. I don't know if you all knew that. I was the best dental technician on the planet Earth. And, uh, no, I'm kidding. But I mean, what we did in my lab, and I had employees, and you know, I had all that kind of stuff, and what we did was we made crowns. Many of you probably have crowns in your mouth. Some are made of porcelain, some are made of gold, some are made of porcelain and gold. Anyway, that's what we did. We did fixed prosthetics. We didn't make dentures. We didn't make false teeth. And we had to do a lot of casting. Casting is an ancient uh, trade and ancient art goes back to the most primitive, er, you know, mankind making stuff. They would make castings in sand. Well, we used uh, sand, but it was much more refined sand. And we had to melt gold with a torch into a crucible and we would wind it up in a centrifuge. And then we would melt the gold and we would watch it with our eyes and it would go, it would melt and clump down then it would turn into a pool of gold and there would be a film on top and we'd take a little flux and we'd sprinkle it on there to clear away the impurities and when it got to the right temperature, the perfect temperature that it would be, that we could throw it into the mold so it would take on the shape of the, of the empty cavity that we had created it had to look just right. The impurities could. If you had any impurities, the thing would be messed up. And so you'd wait and you wait. But if you waited too long, it would start to burn up. And it would actually sparkle and throw gold in the air. And, you know, that was money out of my pocket. So I didn't like that. Uh, it had to be just right. Pure, 
Not overheated, not underheated. And that exposed the impurities. And then the gold could be released, the catch on the centrifuge. And we'd throw it and get your hands out of the way real quick because it'd take your arm off and it'd spin and throw that hot gold. And hopefully it would hit the hole and go into the mold. And not. uh, sometimes it would spray out and go all over the walls. And I would stay late into the night getting every little tiny drop. This is what John is talking about. Some people have said, well, God is just going to annihilate the creation and completely renew it, remake it ex nihilo, from nothing, like He did the first creation. But that's not what we're looking. We're not looking at annihilation. We're looking at purification. Look at verse 1. The sea is no more. Now you remember, the sea is... Who came out of the sea? What rose out of the sea? A dragon, Satan, the beast. The beast came out of the sea and the beast was a mirror of the dragon. They both had seven heads and ten horns and the beast was the enemy of God and His people. And the sea was always the chaotic part. In ancient literature, you can read any ancient literature, you don't have to just read the Bible. The sea was where the gods dwelled. They dwelled in the in the sky, they dwelled in the sea, they dwelled in the underworld that was underneath the ground. And they caused chaos. And they were capricious. You know, they would, they would do sometimes good things, sometimes bad things. You never knew. But the sea was the place, the abode of the demonic in the ancient world. And he's saying the sea is no more. It's not that the sea, literal sea is not. I mean, what would, create, what would the new world be like without a beautiful ocean or a sunset over the ocean? Do you understand what I'm saying? He's saying there's no more chaos. No more beast. No more place for the beast. No more abode for the, for the, for the demons and the darkness and the satanic. Look at verse 4. He Himself, it says, in Greek it's emphasized, He Himself will wipe away every tear. There's no more death, mourning, crying, no pain. All this has passed away. Every one of you in here, even the little kids know, even a child knows, the littlest ones, they all know what it is to feel grief. Maybe it's because they didn't get what they wanted. and Sometimes that's why we cry. We think it's only children that cry for because they don't get what they want. We do that too. But there's a lot of grief in this world, yes? We cry, we mourn, we have pain that nobody knows about but us. And we have pains and hurts that nobody, even we don't understand. Going to wipe them away. He's not going to send an angel to wipe them away. He Himself is going to wipe away those tears. The consequences of sin, all of them are removed They're not erased as if they never happened. This is something that is mind-blowing. You know, every day that you live in heaven and in eternity and in the new creation, every day you are going to be aware. there, There are going to be tears that you will shed because you're going to be, one, very grateful to be there. Hey, my name was written in the book. Thank God. Right? But you're also going to be remembering your redemption. You're going to know that the one that is filling your eyes with His beauty was also the one that became ugly for you. And it's going to cause us to weep with that incredible mixture of deep sorrow, but 
unexpressible joy. You see, the, the glory of heaven would not be glorious if it weren't for the Lamb of God, the Lamb, slain. Remember the first chapter of John? Slain before the foundation of the world. This is going to be in the new creation. Look at verse 6. To the thirsty I'll give from the springs of water without pay. What he's saying, he's not talking about just bubbling water. Of course there will be bubbling water. But he's saying that the deepest longings, the thirst of your soul, everyone in this room, from the littlest to the oldest, we all have longings. We all have deep needs. And what he's saying is now, finally, those thirsts are going to be completely satisfied. Nothing is going to be in the way. You see, here in this life, there are things that make us thirsty. And God understands those things. He understood it with the woman at the well who had been married six times and the sixth one wasn't her husband. He understood her thirst and her longing and her sin that parched her lips. But He says, here you will be satisfied. Look at verse 8. He says, The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all of them will be in the lake of fire. This is the second death. He's going to remove every influence of evil. You know, peer pressure is a terrible thing. It, it, we say peer, all our children, peer pressure, peer pressure. Now forget the kids, adults, are worse. We're just better at it than them. We also are subjected to peer pressure. We also have to have the, the latest thing or the newest thing. We, we, man, you know, how do I look? And, uh, you know, do I have enough money? And how am I squared? And then if you don't have any of those things, we fake it. Because we're, it's so important to us. And here he's saying, you know, all those corrupting things are going to be removed. And finally, in verse 25, and then again at the very end, he tells us there is no night. Verse 22, chapter 22, verse 5, and, chapter, and verse 25 of chapter 21, there is no night. Now, he's not talking about that we're going to live in high noon every day, and we're just going to be there in the full blazing whatever light is. No, there will be nighttime. There will be the beauty of the stars and the creation and all of that. These things are not wooden, literal. They are, he's expressing something. There's no night there because what is the night? The night is the dark. The night is where bad things happen. The night is where sin occurs. The night is where the, the demons dwell. The night is where the monsters come. The night is where the nightmares are. And he's saying there's no night there. Everything that night represented in the bad way is going to be removed. Every vestige of sin, corruption, sin's penalty, sin's power, and finally sin's very presence will be removed. It will no longer, no more night. Dr. Derek Thomas, in his little commentary, I have it up here, it's really terrific. He says the word new, in fact, there's two Greek words for new, and he points out that the word used here is both, both here and in 2 Peter, where 2 Peter talks about the, word be, the world being dissolved and, and new, we're looking for the new one, is a word that suggests not new in time and space, but new in kind. 
or quality. It's a very unique word, and it's saying this world is not new like it never existed before. It's new because it is superior. It's better than the old one, but it is the old one that has been purified. It's, re, it's more than refurbished. It's recreated, renewed, reborn, resurrected. Just like our bodies will be resurrected, we're not going to have a whole different body. It's the same body. Only it is resurrected body. It's a glorified body. It is without corruption and pollution and sin. And Dr. Greg Beale, that's this big fat one right here. Unbelievable book, but wow. Wow. You have to have a whole other lifetime for that book. The new cosmos will be an identifiable counterpart to the old cosmos and a renewal of it, just as the body will be raised without losing its former identity. Now, why is this important? Just this. We'll get to why for the whole thing in a moment. It's important because God left you here. After you became a Christian, the reason why you are here is not just for you. The reason why you're here is for everybody around you. You're here for you too because He has work He wants to do in your life. Some of it includes suffering. Some of it includes blessing. Some of it just includes learning. Some of it includes experiences you have. All of those things are meant to do something in and to and through you. But He also left us here for other people. This is why Christianity is an extremely communal religion. A body, the body of Christ. The description of the new creation symbolically and metaphorically is this. And here's the point. If you don't hear a whole lot of the other stuff I will say, I want you to understand this. He's going to show us a description of this new cosmos. And it's going to include a city, a temple, and a garden. And we are going to have to strive with all our intellectual might Not to think of a city or a garden or a temple because he's not talking about a place. Now, get this. He is not, yes, he is describing a place, but it's not just a place, it's people. The illusion of the new heavens and new earth and the new city and the new temple and the new. Garden, all of that are real and literal, of course, but they are all, like everything else in Revelation, they're alluding to something else. And he tells us what they are after the introduction of 1 through 8. He tells us what they are in verse 9 and 10. Look at it. The angel took me and he said, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and He showed me, what? The heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. The holy city. Do you understand what He's saying? He's saying, yes, we're going to be in a place, but He's saying 
not a place for people, but people who make a place. Now, I don't know about you, but this thrilled me down to my bones because we get so caught up now in the description of the city with its streets of gold and its pearly gates and, and all of that stuff, the jasper and the... the you know, and, and I've, I read some of the commentaries. Now listen, these commentaries don't do that. But there are commentaries out there that, that go down into every one of those minerals, those, those gems... And they tell you what all the meanings are of all. You know, that is not what is in view here. It's a picture. It's not a puzzle to be puzzled out. What does this one mean? What is it? No, he's saying, look at the glory. Look at the beauty. Look at the grandeur of this magnificent city that is descending from God. Jesus Christ is not going to marry a city. He says it himself. He's going to marry a bride. And so that city that he's describing is a description of you and me. Yes, it will be a place. But it's an illusion to us. And I, you know what? I think if, if we were honest, if we just stopped everything right now and, and thought for a minute, I want you to do it. Think for a minute. Do you really see yourself like this? Do you consider yourself to be this beautiful? Having the glory of God? Look at verse 11 and following. The glory of God, a radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes. Why do we know He's talking about us? Because the the number 12 means the people of God. He says it over and over and over. One, two, three, four, five times he says it. In just this little package, this little verses, he's talking about the people of God that make the city. He's saying this is you. Glorious, pure, perfected, valuable, filled your gold, your your four square, you know, you're a perfect cube. You know, some of you are cube heads, but you know, a perfect cube, you know what I'm saying? The cube was was the idea of perfection. That's how the Holy of Holies was made. That's how the temple, everything was cubic. Not because cubes are special, but because cubes represent something. Perfection on every dimension. And it's 12,000 stadia. That is like 1,400 miles. It's enormous. But you know, you don't think, well, it's going to be a big, like a Borg cube. You know, those, you Star Trek, any Star Trek fans here? Like a Borg cube? No, it's not going to be like a cube. It's, it's perfection. And you would have immediately thought, wow, we're not going to be outside looking at the temple from the inside. We're going to get to go inside. More than that, we're going to be part of the very building, the stones, the foundation, 144 cubits. That's a couple hundred feet thick of jasper, pure gold, clear as gold. He just keeps, he keeps, you can hear him running out of his words. This was a fisherman. He didn't have the, uh, the uh, vocabulary of an, ec- an Oxford don. He was a fisherman and he's exhausting his language. 
a jewel, a jasper. But it's not just a city. You see, what he's showing you is a perfected people. Not perfect people, right? How many of you believe that you're chosen by God? Let me see a show of hands. How many believe you're chosen by God? We've got some work to do, it looks like. How many of you think you're choice? See the difference? Here he's telling us, whatever the city is, you look, there's no way to describe it anyway. When you get there, it's going to be much better than all this. What he's saying is, God is going, in the new creation, he's going to perfect his people. 12, 12, 12, 12. It's going to be radiant, glorious, revulgent. You, me, not the city, us. And then look at the temple, verses 22 through 27. He says there's no temple there. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. There's no need for the sun or moon because the glory of God. Now, don't think, oh gosh, there's not going to be a moon, there's not going to be sun. We're going to have all of that. There's going to, it's going to be beautiful. We're going to have sunsets. We're going to have moon rises. Did you all see the moon come up the other night? I mean, it took your breath away. There's going to be glory unspeakable. What he's saying is that the, 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 the pervasiveness, the ubiquity of God's glory is going to be permeating everything. Not something you simply look at, but something you experience in your bones, down to the bottom of your being. The glory of God, the thing that Moses begged to see on the mountain, and God could only let him see his hinder parts. And when he saw the hinder parts, actually kind of funny what he says in Hebrew. <laughs> Doesn't mean back end. <laughs> Your hinder parts is all he got to see, and that left Moses with such a glow on his face, such radiance was coming off of his face when he came down after looking at God's backside. He had to put a veil over himself over his face, because as the glory was dissipating, the people couldn't even look at it. Unbelievable. A temple that's people, that's a lamb, that the people are in union with that lamb in a city. The kings of the earth will bring their glory in. See what John is saying? You, many of you, he's telling his audience, many of you have seen the glory of Rome or you've seen Jerusalem or you've seen Babylon, some other place. Doesn't compare. The kings are going to bring their glory to this place. Nothing unclean will enter. No one who does detestable. It's going to be perfect. No influence of bad and dark and evil. And then finally this city that is also a temple. It just doesn't have a temple. It is a temple. Not only is it a city and a temple, but it is also a garden. These are allusions to the garden in Eden, but it's much, much more than simply the garden of Eden. It's the garden of Eden plus, plus, magnified. So where we had a perfected people in the city and we have perfected worship in the temple, now we are seeing a life. Life that is perfected. 
In the garden we saw the tree of life. Here it is again. The river of the water of life. He's alluding to a scripture. Perhaps some of you know it. It's in Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 47. Where the water... Ezekiel sees this this amazing vision of the future temple. And it is enormous. It is huge. And it is expansive. And from that temple is flowing water. It's like a little stream that comes trickling out. And when it gets to the bottom of the stairs of the temple, now it's at calf length. And when it gets out a little further, it's knee high. And when it gets a little further, it's waist high. And out in the, out in the biggest part of it, it's up to the horse's bridles. He's saying it's going to cover the earth. This garden. Perfected life. You know, right now we live in a life that there's so many things that aren't right with our life, Right? I mean, sin notwithstanding, I mean, forget the sin part, just everything. We have wrinkles. We have spots on our body. We have diseases. My goodness. Don't go to the doctor. They'll find something. I know. I've been to the... Every time I go there, they tell me I have something. Don't go. Save yourself. No, you do need to go. But I mean, you know, we know something's not right. This is life, perfected people, perfected worship, perfected life. The city, the temple, the garden image, he says, finally, finally, we will be in unmediated presence of God. The immediate presence of God. He will be with us, we will be His people. With nothing in between. We are that now, but there's stuff in between. There's still the present. See why he said he's going to remove all that stuff. He's going to leave us just with him. Just with the beauty. And us in a perfected state. Glorious, pure, clean, transparent like glass. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to cover up anymore. And then the best part, the architecture, the, the dimensions, the building, all the building materials, all talking about you. The perfection of that coming day, the consummation of all things. This is what scholars have talked about. I remember the first time I heard R.C. Sproul preach a sermon on the beatific vision. You know, we remember R.C. mostly because he was such a great teacher. But R.C. was also a great preacher. And when he preached that sermon on the beatific vision of seeing God face to face, proston theon, looking right in something now, if we did it now, we would be turned into a French fry. But then... We're going to be able to look at Him face to face and and mirror that image back to Him. God is going to have the pleasure of seeing you fully and completely glorified. The work that He spent his His whole time doing and the cost of His dear Son. He's going to see that reflection, that glory, that beauty in you right face to face. With Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their forehead. In other words, everything in your mind will be 
focused on your great creator who loves you and gave himself for you. And now every day we doubt those things. Things come into our life and our experience that that kind of darkens that, pollutes that, our hardships, our sin, uh, whatever else goes on in our lives, the, the experiences we have. All of that is somehow in between us. They're going to be gone and you're going to be face to face with pure, undiluted love. God loving you the way we were meant to be loved. Why is he telling them? Think about this, folks. From the very beginning, I kept reminding you, there is an original context that the people that got these letters and got this first book were living. They were living in tremendous persecution, physical persecution, but they were also living in a culture that was steeped in polygamy, in polytheism, in wrong doctrine, even in their churches. Their churches were filled with wrong doctrine. They were steeped in a culture that was sexually polluted, in a culture that was highly militaristic and violent. That's where they lived. And John is telling them, and he's also telling you and I, and you need to hear this, perhaps more than anything else. He's telling us that this chaos will end. He's giving you a vision. He's letting you look out ahead so that you can put the anchor of your soul while your ship is being tossed about by the winds of, of uh, Paul said, the winds of doctrine, uh, the, the writer of Hebrew. What, these guys all talked about the troubles of this life and you must anchor your soul to something. And Paul is saying, set your anchor there in the consummation, in the new creation, in what you are now but will be then also. The already, you're already these things, but we've not yet gotten there where we are going. We haven't reached the destination. We're still in the wilderness like Moses and the children of Israel. We're still like Paul out in the desert of Saudi Arabia. We're still there. We're still pilgrims. We're looking for the city like Abraham. Looking for the city that's not built with hands. Do you see this? It's not a city built with hands. It's a people that God has built by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying that creation's ultimate meaning, He's saying creation has an ultimate goal, and that goal is this. This new cosmos, perfected people, perfected worship, a perfected life. And why? How does it... How does it get there? How does the Lamb, ask yourself this final question and then we'll close. Think about everything you know. Some of you know a lot about the Bible. You've been in the church all your life. You've probably heard everything about the Bible. How in the world, in the story of the Bible, how does the Lamb get to be on this throne? How does He get there? How does this great King arrive on this throne, he gets there by being a lamb 
slain before the foundation of the world. Look, look at verse 5 through 7 of chapter 21. Look at it. You need to see it. The one seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. Who is that that is speaking from God's throne? It is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus, to get to this throne, folks, this actually answers the question of evil to some extent. How does He get here and how does He make you that? Is by stepping out of eternity, by getting off of the throne and coming down here into the wilderness, coming down into this veil of tears gives Him the right to wipe those tears away. He stepped out of eternity into a dry How come he didn't go to Hawaii, for goodness sakes? He went to the desert. He went to El Paso. Worse than El Paso. He went to Fabens. He stepped out of eternity, gave up his throne. He went into a dry and weary land, into our condition, flesh and blood. In the weakness of flesh and blood. And dying on the cross, he cries out, I thirst so you can drink from the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the sorrow and the weight, the pressure of sin that bears us down and crushes us underneath its feet, makes us a slave. The debilitating feeling of sin, the guilt, the shame. He cried out on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does that mean? I'm going in the grave. That's what he said. I'm going in the grave, God. I'm giving you my spirit. But my body is going in the grave. So that we can be resurrected and cleansed and purified. He bore the weight of the sin of the world. All our filth. All our sin. All our corruption. All our pollution. He absorbed every bit of it. That is the story of Christianity. Jesus didn't say, Ali, Ali, oxen free, everybody's good, everybody's fine. He took it. The sword pierced his heart so that we could live forever in a resurrected, glorified body that looks like this city. Valuable. It, with no, no cost to you. But you are without cost. How do you measure the cost of the life of the Son of God? God so loved the world that He was willing to take His Son 
and say to humanity in our condition with all our filthy rags to say to us, I love you this way. I'll give my son for you. I'll put him in your place on a cross for you, in a grave for you, so that you can live with me like this forever. And all he asks us is to trust him. Just trust me. Will you trust him? I pray you will. Father, these are... uh, It's hard to even get our head around this kind of thing, but I pray, Holy Father, please open our hearts, not so that we can be proud of how glorious we are, but absolutely humbled before the great King, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us this way, to come into this world and take our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy, to never leave us or forsake us, even through all the junk we do in our lives, good night. And you never leave our side. You never hold your nose. You love us. And I pray that as we enter this holy season of Easter, that we will remember and that we will live in ways that are that perfectly reflect you and your love with glory and humility and thanksgiving and love of one another. Please help us to do that. I beg you. We need you. And we need this life, this resurrected life, to be pulsing inside of our bodies now and bringing us from one glory to another. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.